You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. So as many of you know, we have been in this series called Once Upon a Time. Uh, In fact, I think today may be the last week in that series. But as we have been studying the parables of Jesus in this series, it's made me think a lot about the power of stories and the power of books. I have been a reader for as long as I can remember. I love to read. And from a little girl, I remember reading, and I used to love Nancy Drew mysteries. Does anyone know Nancy Drew books? I loved Nancy Drew mysteries, and my goal in life was to be Nancy Drew when I grew up and to be an amateur sleuth like Nancy was. In my single adult years, I read a lot of romance novels. (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily recommend that uh, to you, but that's what I did. And I waited for my Prince Charming to ride up on a white horse. Now, here's here's the interesting thing about that. My Prince Charming, Noland, did ride up in a Ford Bronco, so so I feel like I kind of sort of got my wish about the guy on the white horse. It was a red Ford Bronco, but anyway. I still love to read, and literally, I usually have two to three library books checked out at any given time. But you know, one of my very favorite eras of reading was when our daughter Catherine was young, too young to read, to herself, and I would read books to her. And I sometimes think that we think of children's books as being just for kids, but children's books are powerful literature. Children's books give us many life lessons, and so I I want you to think with me about a few children's books that may be familiar to you. The first one is this, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. In this book, Alexander has a day when everything that absolutely could go wrong does go wrong. And Alexander thinks that if he lived in Australia, where everything is down under and upside down, that he'd be having a great day. But Alexander's wise mother tells him, you know what, everybody has bad days, even in Australia. And then another book, Where the Wild Things Are. This is a book about a child named Max who is bored with his life and has dreams of running away. And in his imagination, Max is transported to a frightening and monstrous land inhabited by beasts where he becomes the king of the wild things. And he revels in the freedom that he has in the jungle. But once Max smells the aroma of his mom cooking dinner, 
he's quickly transported back to reality, and he's glad to abdicate his throne and go have some food. Where the wild things are teaches us that adventures can be thrilling, but coming home can also be just as thrilling. And then one of our family's favorite books is Elmer. Elmer the Patchwork Elephant. As you see there on the cover, Elmer doesn't look like all the other elephants. He's multicolored and patchwork, and he does not like standing out from the crowd of gray elephants. And so Elmer decides he's going to change his color, and he wants to be gray and fit in with all the other uh, elephants. But eventually, Elmer decides, you know what, it's not too bad to be different. I kind of like being different. And so he goes back to his original multicolored self. So books can be powerful. Books can transport us. That is true of children's books. It's true of adult fiction and nonfiction. And it is certainly true of the book that we study here each Sunday, the Bible. The Bible is the true word and thoughts of God. The Bible was inspired by God, but it was written down by men, and it is one continuous story from beginning to end, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And the main character in this story is Jesus. And the main theme of this book is Jesus' redemption of mankind. The Bible was written for our benefit, and that's why we take time every week to study the words of this book. But you know, a really good technique when you're studying a text of scripture on your own, a really good technique is to ask yourselves two questions about any text, and those questions are this. Number one, What does this passage teach me about myself? And then number two, what does this passage teach me about God? And just a little tip, that works on any passage of scripture. Ask yourself those two questions. What does does the passage teach about me? What does it teach about God? So today we're going to look at another parable or story that Jesus told, and this one comes from Luke chapter 15. This is the parable of the lost son, or sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. So if you have scripture, um, a copy of scripture, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 15, this begins in verse 11, and I'm going to read the entirety of this parable before we begin to dissect it and talk about it. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11, if you don't have a copy of the scripture, it's on the screen there. He, that's Jesus, also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. 
After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We're going to break this text down, and you may have already figured this out, but in this passage, the father is meant to represent God, and the sons are meant to represent us or humankind. And so if we keep that in mind, I want to start out with what I see as the big idea of this passage, and if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. The big idea I see from this passage is that God is a gracious, loving Father, even when we are ungrateful, rebellious children. God is a gracious, loving Father, even when we are ungrateful, rebellious children. So that's our overarching idea, but I want us to dissect this passage even further and start by asking, what does this passage teach me about myself? And I see at least three truths 
that I think this passage teaches us about ourselves. Number one is this. Our default mode is foolish. Our default mode is foolish. So this father distributed a portion of his assets to the younger son. And what did the younger son do? Verse 13 says, he squandered his estate in foolish living. This dude wasted, squandered, foolishly spent everything that the father had given him. And he ended up so hungry that he actually wanted pig slop to eat. Our default mode is foolish. You know, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, every person born is a sinner. From the moment of our birth, Sin is in our DNA. It's our default mode. And without the power of Jesus working in our lives through his Holy Spirit, we make foolish, detrimental, and often disastrous decisions. Now, I'm going to be really honest with you guys this morning because that's kind of our mode of operation here, isn't it? <laughs> I have a tendency to be really judgmental. And regarding other people's failures and mistakes and screw-ups and mess-up and sins, I can sometimes catch myself thinking, I'd never do that. I wouldn't be that foolish. I've got better sense than that. But you know what? There are some benefits to aging. <laughs> One of which is aging brings perspective. And the older I get, the more perspective I have, and the more that I'm committed to dig deep and learn about myself, I realize, honestly, I am not above or immune to any sin. And I bet that's true of you, too. I love the quote from the 16th century reformer John Bradford as he was watching a group of prisoners being led to their execution. And he so eloquently said, There but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. Do you understand that your default mode is foolish and left to your own devices, you're capable of making some pretty disastrous decisions. Can you, will you lay down your pride enough this morning to admit that? Our default mode is foolish. That's the first thing I think this text teaches about ourselves. But the second thing is this. It is never too late to make life changes. It is never too late to make life changes. The text tells us that when the son hit rock bottom and came to his senses, he returned to his father and he admitted his sin 
another moment of honesty here. I lived a lot of my adult life pretending that I was a follower of Jesus. I was baptized when I was 12 years old. And although I had what I call warm fuzzies toward Jesus, I was not living for Jesus. His priorities were not my priorities. In fact, for several years, I was living in flat-out rebellion against what I knew Jesus wanted me to do, which was give up my career and be a stay-at-home mom. And then, just like the son in this passage hit rock bottom, I hit rock bottom with my health. I was 35 years old. I had a three-year-old daughter. And I became so ill that my doctor said to me, Denise, if you had waited two more hours to seek medical treatment, I could not have saved you. I was at rock bottom physically, and I was scared to death that I was going to leave Noland a widower and our daughter Catherine without a mother. And so at my rock bottom state, as I lay in my hospital room by myself, I told Jesus that I was scared and that I was sorry and that if he would let me get out of the hospital and be healthy, that I would follow him the rest of my days. And I'm here today, so <laughs> Jesus answered my prayer. Guys, God is a gracious, loving Father. Even when we are ungrateful and rebellious, children. And it is never too late to make a life change. Now we often resist that. I resisted that because I wanted to, quote, be in control of my life. Well, what I quickly found out and what you may know or may find out is that we are not in control of our lives. God is in control of our life, and honestly, sometimes he will allow hard things, really, really hard things, to point us to him and get us to turn or return to him. And you know what? When we do that, he never mocks us, he never ridicules us, he welcomes us with open arms. It is never too late to make life changes. I have no idea what is going on in your life because I'm not omniscient. But God knows. And I bet for this many people here, I bet that there are at least some of you for whom God is asking you to make a life change. And so the question is, what's it going to take for you to do that? How low are you going to have to go before you're ready to surrender to him? 
And then our third truth that I see about ourselves in this passage is that we struggle when life seems unfair. We struggle when life seems unfair. To illustrate this truth, the text actually shifts its focus to the older brother. So the younger brother lived foolishly, wasted everything, returned home, and his dad gives him a party. And when the older brother comes into the house, this party is in full swing. But is the older brother happy? No. (laughs) Instead of being happy that the long-lost brother has returned home, the text tells us that the older brother verbally attacks his dad. Dad, I've done everything that you've asked of me. I've been the good son, and you've never given me a party. But my brother, he doesn't even call him his brother in the text, your son has squandered and wasted everything, and he comes home and you give him a party. This is not fair. The older brother is jealous. And guys, just like foolishness runs through our DNA, guess what? Jealousy does too. We struggle and find it difficult to be happy for someone else when we feel that we deserve something that we do not have. But you know what? Life is not fair. That's one of our family mottos. If our daughter was here this morning, she would tell you, yeah, I heard that a whole lot growing up. Life is not fair. Or at least life does not live up to our definition of fair. And again, moment of honesty. Hang on. Even though I know this truth, even though I taught our daughter this truth, I struggle with this truth. And I remember a time years ago when Nolan and I were going through a particularly challenging time. Nolan's company had been sold and he was working for this new company. The owners of the company were his bosses and basically they were just tyrants. He was working a minimum of 80 hours a week, and he was often working 100 hours a week. And our daughter was five years old, and she never saw her daddy, and I never saw my husband because he went to work before the sun came up, before we got out of bed, and he came home from work late, late at night after we had already gone to sleep. And I remember one Friday afternoon when Catherine's friend Amy was at our house playing and Amy's parents came by to pick her up so that they could all go out to dinner on Friday night. And I remember as this family's vehicle pulled out of our driveway, I still remember the rage inside me. And I broke down in tears, and I don't remember if I said this out loud or not, but what I was thinking was, why 
why do the Browns get to go out and have a nice family dinner on Friday night and I'm stuck here again with my five-year-old and my husband is at work? In fact, God, why does Kevin have such a cushy job? He doesn't even work on Friday. God, this is not fair. But you know what? I recognize now that the truth about our thinking that life is not fair is that we always think we deserve more. We never think we deserve less, right? I was so self-absorbed that I couldn't be happy for the Browns. I was just angry that I thought life was unfair. But you know what the Bible teaches us that we deserve? The Bible teaches that we deserve death because we are sinners. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, the payment of sin is death. See, the reality is because we are all sinners, God does not owe us anything. In fact, if he gave us what we deserve, we would all get eternal destruction. So maybe you and I need to reset our thinking about fairness in life. Maybe we need to ask God to realign our thinking with his and help us remember that we are owed nothing. And anything that we have is a gift from him. So three truths that this passage teaches about ourselves. Our default mode is foolish. It's never too late to make life changes. And we struggle when life seems unfair. But that's not all this passage teaches. This passage teaches us about God. Three lessons or truths about God. First one is this, God sometimes gives us exactly what we ask for. God sometimes gives us exactly what we ask for. The younger son asked his dad for the inheritance and the father gave it to him. Now, I don't know this because the text doesn't tell it, but I have to imagine this was not the first time this son had asked for this. I imagine he had been asking the father for his share of the estate, pestering the dad, begging the dad, badgering the dad. And one day, the dad's like, sure, fine. Here you go. Knowing full well that this was not going to turn out well for the son. When my friend Patsy's son, Ross, was three years old, Patsy went shopping in July, and she bought Ross a winter coat on super sale. Now, Patsy did not intend for Ross to wear the coat that day in July when she bought it. She intended to save the coat for winter. But Ross loved this coat so much that he insisted on wearing it to church on that Wednesday night for services. 
And so Patsy made the decision not to battle with Ross. She put the coat on him. She zipped the coat up. She loaded Ross in the car. And off they went to church. July in North Carolina is hot. And it's humid. Like 95 degrees hot and 90% humidity. And as you can imagine, it didn't take very long until Ross became uncomfortable in the coat. They're driving to church and Ross is hot. They get out of the car and walk through the parking lot and Ross is hot. They get inside the church and Ross is hot and he decides now, now the coat needs to come off. But guess what happened? The zipper was stuck on the coat. <laughs> Patsy gave Ross exactly what he asked for and it did not turn out the way Ross had hoped and expected. In this parable, the father gave the younger son exactly what he asked for, and it did not turn out as the son expected or hoped. And you know, God sometimes does that. He sometimes gives us exactly what we ask for. Why? Because God is not a puppet master, and we are not his puppets. God gave us a brain and the ability to reason and think and logic. He gave us what theologians call free will, which is the ability to make our own choices. And sometimes God gives us exactly what we ask for by allowing us to make a choice that he knows is not best for us. As I said earlier, with age comes perspective. And as I look back over my life, I can tell you I am so, so grateful that God has not always given me what I've asked for. Because I see how disastrous that would have turned out. So I think instead of being disappointed or distraught, or discouraged when God doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we think he should, when exactly we think he should, I think it would benefit us for us to stop and remember that God's ways are higher than our ways. And God sees the big picture. And we only see the here and now. God is a gracious, loving Father, always. Always. The second truth that I think we learn about God from this passage is that God always welcomes the repentant. God always welcomes the repentant. Verse 20 says, While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. This father was waiting. He was watching for this son to come home. And when he saw his son at a distance, he ran 
to the Son and embraced him. God is never like we sometimes are. He's never standoffish. He never throws our past in our faces. He never sarcastically says, well, what took you so long? He never withholds his love. God is always, always, always overjoyed when we turn to him. And so I wonder, are you this morning, are you living for God or are you off like the younger son doing your own thing? God wants you to turn to him, to come to him. And friends, he is watching and waiting. And he has his arms outstretched, ready to receive you. God always welcomes the repentant. And then the third truth that we learn about God is that his love and grace are unexplainably extravagant. God's love and grace are unexplainably extravagant. Verse 22, the father told his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. Then bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. This is extravagant love and extravagant grace from the father to the son. You know, the father could have been very kind and very loving when the son returned home and he could have just said, welcome home, son. I'm really glad you're back. And then the father could have gone about his daily activities, but that is not what happened. He threw this enormous, extravagant party. When I surrendered my life to God in the hospital room, the next thing I did was tell Noland of my decision. Now, normally, Noland and I make big life-changing decisions together, and I highly recommend doing that with your spouse. But in this particular instance, see, I had been keeping a secret. I had told no one not even Noland, that I knew what God was asking me to do, which was leave my career and stay home. No one knew of that. That was just between me and God. And God had spoken so clearly to me in the hospital room. I knew so clearly what his plans for me were that I didn't think my leaving my career really could be up for discussion or debate. So on the evening of my surrender to God, when Nolan came to the hospital room after work, I said, sit down, I need to tell you something. I've said that a few times in our life, and the expression is always like, turn white. Like, what is she going to say? And I said, Nolan, I have something to tell you, and I want to preface this by saying I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. 
God and I have made a decision today. And as soon as I can, I need to quit my job and stay home. And I went on to explain more details and about my living in rebellion. And Nolan said to me, I actually don't know how this is going to work. But I see the conviction in your eyes, and I hear that in your voice. You see, what was going to happen was that suddenly our income was going to be cut in half. And I knew this decision was going to be tough, and Nolan knew what it, that it was going to be tough, but honestly, I did not have a choice. And then, you know what happened? <laughs> Unexplainably, within two weeks, God miraculously and graciously and generously and extravagantly presented Noland with a new job opportunity that literally made up for my loss in income. God did not chide me. He did not ridicule me. He did not make me suffer for my willful disobedience to him. But he graciously and lovingly and extravagantly poured out this financial blessing on our family. God is gracious and loving even when we are ungrateful and rebellious. God sometimes gives us what we ask for. He always welcomes the repentant. And his love and grace are unexplainably extravagant. Do you understand these truths about yourself? And do you understand these truths about God? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mirror that your word is to us. And Lord, would you give us the courage and conviction to look in that mirror and to understand what it is that you are saying to us today. In your name we pray. Amen.